Because this is obviously for, for, let's say, like Americans who embrace Islam. This is obviously something, in many cases, very different from what, from what they're used to. And in particular, many new converts to Islam, for a number of reasons, they sometimes have difficulty with this idea of there being some kind of separation between men and women. In some cases, I mean, let's be frank, in some cases because they don't want to give up having these kinds of interaction with opposite sex. I mean, no one can deny that, that that's, that's part of the reason why many times new Muslims have some difficulty in this area. And for other new Muslims also, they might be influenced by things that they've read or what people have told them that really this separation of, of the sexes and so forth is not really part of Islam as such, but it is simply part of some cultures, and in fact some cultures maybe after the time of the Prophet ﷺ. When I spoke about the goals of the Sharia, the goals of Islamic law, and the things that, the, that Islamic law seeks to preserve, some of what they call the necessities of life, the basic issues of life and society that, that Islamic law is trying to preserve, one of them is the, the ties of family, the, the family ties and kinship ties. It is part of the goal of of Islamic law to make the family as strong and as pure as possible. To make the family as strong and as pure and as healthy as possible. And within this, one of the aspects that there is emphasis on in Islam, and there can be no doubt, no question about this, one of the aspects is this kind of sexual purity or purity when it comes to the relationships between men and women and the honor of men and women and so forth. Because of this, there are specific texts in the Sharia that speak about the manner in which men and women are supposed to behave towards one another. So, For example, there is a clear prohibition of a man and a woman who are not related to each other. In other words, they are not like husband and wife or, or for example, a man can be with his mother or sister and so forth. There's clear text in the, in the Sharia that a man and a woman who are not related to each other cannot be alone in private. Now, think about this. What, why, why does the Sharia say that a man and a woman cannot be alone in private? And if they are alone in private, actually, then a shaitan, the devil, is the third among them. What is the purpose behind this? Obviously, the purpose behind this is to make sure that there's no door open to them to do something that they should not be doing. And when we speak about from a, a Sharia perspective, we talk about a, from a Sharia perspective, what is it that they should not be doing? Well, it's not just the question of illegal sexual intercourse, but other, I mean, any kind of, of sexual intimacy, any kind of touching and, and so forth of a sexual nature, any kind whatsoever is forbidden between people who, who are not husband and wife. And we see, for example, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, in different places in the Qur'an, is, is speaking to women, for example, about how to dress and how to behave, and even speaking to men also about how to behave. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, Oh, Benny. 
أيمانهن أو التابعين غير أولي الإربة من الرجال أو الطفل أو الطفل الذين لم يظهروا على عورات النساء ولا يضربن بأرجلهن ليعلم ما يخفين من زينتهن وتوبوا إلى الله جميعا أيها المؤمنون لعليكم تفلحون Tell the believing women to lower their gaze and protect their private parts and not to show off their adornments except only that which is apparent and to draw and to draw their veils over their necks and bosoms and not to reveal their adornments except to their husbands their fathers their husbands fathers their sons their husbands sons their brothers or their brothers sons or their sisters sons or their women or female slaves or old male servants who lack vigor or small children who have no sense of the shame of sex, and let them not stamp their feet so as to reveal what they hide of their dormants, and beg Allah to forgive you, O believers, that you may be successful. And the men also are commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to lower their gaze and to protect their private parts as well. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the women that look, you have a circle of male relatives. Outside of that circle of male relatives, you cannot go out and show yourself and display your beauties. Now this, you could, if, you, if you just think about this, the strict laws of Islam with respect to the dress of the women. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O Prophet, tell your wives and your daughters and the women of the believers to draw, to draw their cloaks all over their bodies. That will be better that they should be known as respectable women so as not to be avoided and Allah is all forgiving most merciful. So here again we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanding the, the females, the Muslim women to cover all of their bodies. Okay, now why, why, just think now, why are these laws in the Sharia? Can you imagine or do you think it is possibly the case that the woman is asked to dress in a modest fashion and cover all of her body and yet at the same time she can sit with men and flirt with them and, and lead them on and so forth or vice versa also men can sit with her and, and talk to her in, 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 pro, in appropriate manners and lead them on. Does this make any sense? Now obviously the, the question of dress is just one aspect of the, of the ultimate goal of trying to keep the society from a sexual perspective as pure as possible. So therefore we also find hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in which he is warning about the intermixing with women. The Prophet ﷺ said, Beware of entering upon women. Beware of entering upon women. In other words, stay away from... At that time, and at that time it was, you know, the women in general had different places that they would be other than men. And so the Prophet ﷺ is saying, look, don't go to where the women are gathering and so forth. He is say, saying, do not mix with women. And so the Prophet ﷺ was asked, what about the in-laws? You know, can you go among your in-laws, men and women, mixing easily? And the Prophet ﷺ said, the in-laws are death. Okay, so this expression from the Prophet ﷺ is obviously a very strong expression where the Prophet ﷺ is warning even more so about those people who feel who feel more relaxed. They feel like, oh, this is my my brother's wife or or and, and so forth. And so they feel relaxed and they feel like they can interact with another one another. And the Prophet ﷺ is actually giving him a stronger warning about them. The Prophet ﷺ has demonstrated to us that the opposite sex, you know, and the attraction of the opposite sex, this is something very dangerous. Especially for men. The Prophet ﷺ said that he has left behind 
for, for men, no greater trial, no greater test than that of women. Because of all the different sins that uh, a, a man might commit, one of the ones that he might be most easily induced to is, is committing those acts which are illegal with the opposite sex. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, this is the greatest trial that he has left behind him for men. Now how could someone, for example, hear this from the Prophet ﷺ, that this is a great, what is known in Arabic as fitna. This is a great trial. This is something that could easily seduce you or get you into doing something wrong. You know, some people say, well, look, there's no hadith or there's no verse that says that what is known as ikhtulat, the mixing between men and women, that this is haram. Well, of course, there's no clear text because there's some circumstances where there might be some, has to be some mixing. When you buy and sell, there might be women buying and selling, or if you're teaching, you might have to teach women, obviously. In the court of law, there's going to be. There's, and, you know, if your neighbor is a, a female, sometimes you'll have to pass by them and so forth. There's obviously many circumstances in which you're going to have to come across women. If ikhtalat were forbidden in every possible way, this would be a great hardship in the sharia. But at the same time, it does not take a genius in Islamic law to see all of these texts and what they're pointing to and how these texts are pointing to the fact that in general, men and women are not, from the, from the Sharia's perspective, are not free to interact freely and flirt with one another and talk with another and become comfortable with one another and be associating with one another on a regular basis and so forth. You know, you cannot read these texts and come to that conclusion. And you also have to remember the fact that it is not simply the, the ultimate goal of illegal sexual intercourse that is forbidden. Now that's not the only thing that is forbidden, as the Prophet has told us in the hadith that Allah has written for, for the son of Adam, for human beings, his share of adultery, which he inevitably commits. The adultery of the eye is the sight. So look at those things that are forbidden for you to look at. Entice a man, so looking at her and gazing at her with lust and so forth, obviously this is haram. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, the adultery of the eyes is the sight, the adultery of the tongue is the talk. Flirting with her and speaking with her, or, or in the case of women also flirting with men and so forth, and speaking with them in improper ways and leading them on and so forth. And the Prophet ﷺ said, continue the, the adultery of the tongue is the talk, and another narration, the adultery of the hand is the touch. And the inner self wishes and desires, and what... In, your, in yourself then you begin to get some desires and wants and the private part either affirms it or denies it or rejects it either f- fulfills it or doesn't in other words even if someone doesn't reach that ultimate stage of doing the ultimate wrong with respect to a member of the opposite sex still all of these steps up to it are a kind of zina or kind of adultery the Prophet was describing this is the words of the Prophet. So all of these things are wrong. So why why would a why would a Muslim then, whether male or female, continually allow themselves to be in a situation where they're mixing with the opposite sex and so forth and opening the door to all of these kinds of wrongs? And so that is why many of the scholars throughout the history they have stressed the fact that in general the relationship between men and women have to have to be restricted. It is not just an open door. You treat them as a friend like you would treat a brother and so forth. And the interaction between them should be restricted to what is needed. Should not think of themselves as just, I'm going to be cozy friends with this uh, man and this man thinks I'm going to be cozy friend with this sister. Now this is not, this is not proper. This is not proper because it is, it is uh, harming one of the one of the most important goals of the Sharia as a whole. And as I said, for some new Muslims and for some converts, this aspect is somewhat difficult. And they may not even think it's important. But in reality, if you think about what Islamic society is about, 
and what Islamic law is about. Islamic law is about guiding the entire society, not just you know one individual might be able to say, oh, I'm strong enough, I'm not going to do anything wrong with this woman, nothing wrong with me sitting with this woman and talking with her and even flirting and so forth. We're not going to do anything. But this is not Islamic law. Islamic law is not saying, oh, so-and-so in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, he can do this, but other people cannot. I mean, if you look at society as a whole, look at the society. The United States has become very promiscuous. How many teenage pregnancies are there? How many unwed mothers are there? Do you think that this is the kind of society that Islam wants? In which if a, if a, if a married person commits adultery, the, the, the death penalty is, 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 is what is called for? And if a single person, an unmarried person, unwed person commits adultery, they get uh, flogging? Do you really think that this kind of society, what we see in front of us, this is what Muslim society should be like? and the kind of burdens and, and pressures that this puts on society of, of these children being brought up and so forth, or nowadays even all of, the, all of the cases of abortion and so on. Obviously this is not what Islamic society is all about. And unfortunately, not just, by the way, among converts, but even among long-time Muslims and some Muslim cultures, they violate some of these uh, principles of the Sharia especially with respect to the in-laws and family and so forth, they are, they are open between them and so forth. And this is, uh, these are also things that the Muslim convert will see and have to be aware of, and he'll have to do, or she will have to do her best to apply Islam properly in her life, regardless of what, what she might he or she might be seeing even from other Muslims. Uh, let me speak now a little bit about the relationship of the Muslim vis-a-vis vis the society as a whole. And we have to realize that as Muslims, when we accept to live in a certain society, when we accept to live in a certain society, and especially, by the way, if we're coming here from another society, and this may not be, have too much relevance to do with uh, new Muslims or converts to, to Islam, but especially when, we, when we're coming here from another society and we're signing visa papers or we're, or we're asking for citizenship or whatever the case might be, we are making a pact with that country that we are willing to live in. And as I said, either that pact is explicit, something we have signed, or it is implicit by the fact that we are living here and choosing to live here and choosing to remain here. Willingly. We are willingly choosing to live here. So we are making a pact with that society and the other individuals of, of the society that we are going to abide by the laws of that state. We don't have the right to violate the laws of a state simply because we're Muslims and it's not an Islamic state, and so therefore we'll do anything that we, that we want. Obviously, the principles of proper behavior that we've been discussing so far with respect to Muslims and their neighbors and, and, their, and, non, and non-Muslims and non-Muslim relatives and whatever, all of these principles have to apply. In reality, a Muslim, actually, an individual Muslim who is applying Islam in his life and is really adhering to Islam, this individual should be a plus for any society that he's living. Regardless of whether that society is Islamic society or not, that kind of person, that kind of individual should be a plus for any society, for any society that he's living. In fact, when the Prophet Muhammad in, in Mecca when the Prophet ﷺ was in Mecca, he actually left Mecca at one time. This was before the final hijrah. He left Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ had gotten to this point that in order to re-enter Mecca, he had to have protection from someone. And so a, a non-Muslim, when he met the Prophet ﷺ and, and, and the Prophet ﷺ described the situation he was in, he said, no. He said, someone like you, talking about the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. So he is a non-Muslim. He doesn't believe in the Prophet ﷺ. But he said, someone like you cannot be thrown out of a city. No, it is not proper that someone like you is, is asked to leave a society. Because you help the poor, you assist the people, you are truthful, you are honest and so forth. The man continued to describe the Prophet ﷺ and he said, someone of this nature should not be thrown out of a society. And similarly, a Muslim, the Muslim who, when he behaves properly, he should be a plus to any society that he's living in. Whether 
that society is a Muslim society or a non-Muslim society or whatever. Because as we said, for example, he's going to be a good neighbor. Right? He's going to treat the other people in his community, closest to him in his community, he's going to treat them well. They should be happy to have this Muslim as their neighbor. When the Muslim deals with other Muslims, when this Muslim deals with other members of society, regardless of whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, he's going to be honest, he's going to be fair. When he works, for example, and, and he earns a living and he gets paid for the work that he's, do- that he's done, he's going to make sure that he does the work properly. As we talked about, actually a Muslim should try to achieve ihsan in everything that he does. He, tra- he should try to do everything in an excellent manner. And that is the overall behavior of a Muslim. He will also avoid, you know, no, no matter what society that you're speaking about nowadays, a Muslim by nature of following Islam, he's going to avoid those actions that those societies consider wrong and, and harmful. In fact, usually it is the opposite. I mean, usually the case is that they are going to allow many things that the Muslim himself would never do. But those actions which they consider wrong, a Muslim is going to avoid. Right? A Muslim is not going to, uh, the Muslim, a Muslim is not going to murder someone. A Muslim is not going to rob someone. The Muslim is not going to bribe someone. And as I said, in addition to that, the proper Muslim, the Muslim who is applying his faith, is also going to avoid, avoid alcohol, is going to avoid drugs, is going to avoid so many things which are burdening society. You know, how much, how much of taxpayers' money goes into relieving some of the problems that are caused by alcoholism, by drug abuse, and so forth? You know, the shelters that, uh, that we pay for, for example, many of them, they're filled with people because of drugs and alcohol. That's why they're in there, and that's why they need our help. How many people get killed in, in alcohol-related accidents and so forth? And all of this harm that is brought to society, all of these kinds of things, even if they are legal, like alcohol, even if they are legal in society, a Muslim is not going to do them. A Muslim in general is going to be some, someone positive and beneficial for virtually any society that he's living in. Unfortunately, though, a Muslim's, a Muslim's view of what is the best society will be different from a non-Muslim view. Right? So he will not have the same, he will not feel the same maybe with respect to many things that the non-Muslim will feel. So for example, things like pornography, which are legal, or alcohol. You know, from a Muslim perspective, these things don't belong in a society. For many non-Muslims, they think, yes, this is what makes America great, right? That we have alcohol, we have pornography, and all this kind of freedom. So that's why maybe their perspective of what society should be is different. They may not have the same feelings towards this society as someone who is engrossed in all of these things and sees these things as just beautiful and perfect. Obviously, this is natural. But the important point is that he is not, first of all, he's not going to bring about harm to society. And secondly, his behavior and his actions should actually benefit society. I want to just talk about one other topic before we before we have inshallah our final lecture next time and that is a muslim and his relationship to wealth and property okay in islam wealth is not considered an evil you know some religions they consider wealth a kind of uh, kind of evil uh, but in reality wealth from an islamic perspective this is a bounty that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestows upon individuals it is definitely not evil. It can be used for evil purposes. And it can be a real trial for human beings. I mean, wealth, as we spoke about before, wealth can be the ultimate goal of some human beings. So it can be truly a trial. But if, it's in, but if it is in the hands of a righteous person, then it is something that can be used for the proper purposes and be something very beneficial. And by the way that the Muslim uses it, he may truly be earning the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an actually describes wealth and children, both of these, as a kind of trial from Him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, truly your wealth and children are but a trial for you. Because as I said, they could lead you 
actually both children and, and wealth sometimes, they could lead you to do something very wrong. Your great love for wealth may lead you to do things which are haram, forbidden in Islam. You're putting such an, an emphasis on wealth and making it virtually as your ultimate goal. This obviously could completely mislead you from, from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so it is a great trial, it is a great responsibility. If Allah gives you wealth, it is a great responsibility. In fact, all of the bounties that we receive, we should be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He has given us these bounties. And part of that gratefulness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that we use these bounties in ways which are pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In ways which are acceptable according to the sharia. And we should always remember that all of these bounties that we receive, in the end, ultimately, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to hold us responsible for what we did with respect to these bounties. Prophet said that the two feet of, of the human being, of the abd, on the day of judgment, will not move. His two feet will not move until he is asked about certain matters. He'll be asked about his life and how he used it. He'll be asked about his knowledge and what he did with it. He'll be asked about his wealth and how he acquired it and how he spent it. And he'll be asked about his body and how he used it up. In this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ made it very clear that we're going to be asked about our wealth, both with respect to how we earned it. We have to make sure that we earn it, we get it in the proper way. And also how we used it up. Because in reality, this wealth actually belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we are more like caretakers. It is a trust in our hands. And we have to use it in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as, as I said, will be pleased with. And so therefore, there are very important ethical principles and laws related to business dealings in Islam. Business dealings and the earning of wealth are not simply a matter or, or a means of getting ahead in this world. Cannot just have, for example, cutthroat competition and taking advantage of others and making money, and making money, and not even being concerned about what is the ultimate effect of the way that you are making money. How many people are you harming by the way that you're making money? How many people are you exploiting by the way that you're making money? Now, these are these are questions that a Muslim has to ask himself. His business behavior, like his interaction with others has to be based on the ethical principles of Islam. And so therefore the Prophet ﷺ has given us lots of guidance with respect to business transactions and with respect to how we have to deal with one another with respect to money and wealth and so forth. Because the drive to earn more money we see this obviously in, in, in society nowadays and the, the kind of materialism that exists and how there's cutthroat competition and people will do practically anything to make money. This can really affect your relationship to others. And among those laws that we find in Islam, Allah has prohibited certain business kind of transactions that are going to produce enmity and hatred between the Muslims. In a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ spoke about the relationships, the relationship the Muslims should have towards one another. And in this hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, in which the Prophet ﷺ speaks about very important general principles, the Prophet ﷺ also gives us specific guidance, and that specific guidance is actually related to business dealings. So in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, لا تحاسدوا ولا تناجشوا ولا تباغضوا ولا تدابروا ولا يبع بعضكم على بيع بعض وكونوا عباد الله إخوانا المسلم أخو المسلم لا يظلمه ولا يخذله ولا يحقره التقوى ها هنا ويشير إلى صدره ثلاث مرات بحسب امرئ من الشر أن يحقر أخاه المسلم كل المسلم على المسلم حرام دمه وماله وعرضه. The Prophet ﷺ said, 
do not be envious of one another. Do not have a feeling of envy towards what your brothers possess because these are your brothers and sisters in Islam. Why? Why are you feeling envious about what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them? So the Prophet said begin, do not be envious of one another. Do not artificially raise prices against one another. You, know, you raise the price so you get more money off of it even though it is not really the price that the market bears and you do this through artificial schemes and so forth. Do not hate one another. Do not turn one's back on one another. Do not undercut one another in business transactions. When a business deal is, is, is finished and, and made, you do not go in, for example, and interfere and say, well, I'll give you this cheaper and so that the, the person cuts off his business dealing that he had just concluded. And be, O servants of Allah, brethren. A Muslim is the brother of a Muslim. He does not wrong him. He does not fail him when he needs him. He does not lie to him. And he does not show contempt for him. Then he said, piety is here, and he pointed to his chest, meaning piety is in the heart. And then he said, it is enough of evil for a person to hold his brother in contempt. All of a Muslim is inviolable to another Muslim, his blood, his wealth, and his honor. So in this very general hadith of the Prophet in which he's speaking about really what kind of relationship Muslims should have one another, so he explicitly mentions some kind of business practices that are going to bring hatred and dislike between Muslims, where you undercut one another, you basically you cheat one another. Not, and it's not even explicitly cheating, but it's a kind of an implicit thing where you go behind someone's back and you harm that brother from a material point of view. These kind of things should be avoided by a Muslim. Because they are not only, ethically speaking, from a business perspective, not very good behavior but actually they harm the relationship between the Muslims. And instead, the Prophet ﷺ has made dua for the one who is easygoing and generous while buying and while selling and while demanding his rights. Okay, the Prophet ﷺ made, as I said, made dua. He said, Rahimallahu rajalan samhan idha ba'a wa idha ishtara wa idha qtada. The Prophet ﷺ made dua, may Allah have mercy upon this individual when he is forgiven and he is forgiving and he is easygoing and he is generous when he's buying and when he's selling and when he's demanding his rights. And one of the keys to a business transaction, because remember now we as Muslims, you know, we do not believe that everything, everything is simply a matter of physical cause and effect. There's a lot of things in this world that you cannot simply explain by physical cause and effect. Why? Why is this individual blessed with certain things while the other individual is not blessed with certain things? Why maybe two people go to the same school, get the same degree, and one ends up to be getting a good job and the other one can't find work and so forth? So, you know, there's a lot of things in this world that, that you cannot explain simply by the material things of this world. Obviously, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is blessing some people and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying other people and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is keeping blessings from other people. And sometimes in some places in the Quran or some hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, we can see exactly why that might be the case. The Prophet ﷺ said that the buyer and the seller have the right of option as long as they do not part from one another. If they were honest and clear, they would be blessed in their transaction. But if they concealed facts and lied, then the blessing of their transaction would be destroyed. So here we, we understand from this that actually virtually anything in life, but even business transactions, our ethics, our behavior is going to be related to the fact that whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to bless us in that thing or not. And so therefore when we enter into business, we must make sure any kind of business transaction, we have the proper behavior. If inshallah we have the proper behavior, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless us in that action. Now, with respect to business ethics and business practices in Islam, the general principle is that any kind of, of business transaction, any kind of arrangement that you, can, that you make, that you can think of, any kind of contract that you might come up with, Islamic law says that it is permissible unless it contains some components that make it haram. Okay, in other words, it is, it is innocent until proven guilty. 
So you're free to make any kind of transaction, any kind of uh, business contract. You're free to make any kind as long as there's certain things which are avoided. Now obviously there are, there are clear ways of, earning, of, of obtaining wealth which are forbidden in Islam. Obviously they're like robbing and stealing and bribery and extortion and all of these kind of things. I mean these things I think you all know, it's clear that these things are forbidden in Islam. But with respect to general kinds of business dealings and contracts and, and, and transactions, as I said, these things are basically permitted unless there's some aspect to them which makes them problematic and then therefore forbidden by the Sharia. For example, the Sharia has forbidden any form of gharar. Of gharar. Okay. And what is meant by this is that this is any kind of overly risky transactions. And when you think about Islamic law, Islamic law and the principles of Islam, what we find in the Quran and what we find in the hadith of the Prophet one of the major things you can see is that the law is meant to prevent anyone from being harmed. Anyone, any kind of injustice to be done to anybody. So if you have an overly risky transaction, Okay. Of course, any there's going to be risk involved in any kind of transactions, but there are some transactions which risk is the essential characteristic of it. You know, like gambling, for example. Gambling is forbidden in Islam. And gambling is a completely risky transaction, right? There's no, uh, you know, when you, when you roll the dice or, or spin the roulette wheel or whatever, there's really nothing except chance involved. And you might win a lot or you might lose a lot. And so therefore someone is going to be harmed. The one who's going to win a lot is harming the person he's taking the money from. The one who's losing a lot, obviously he considers himself the one who's harmed. And so the Prophet ﷺ has forbidden any kind of overly speculative or risky transactions. This is where, for example, there's uncertainty, uncertainty about the price of something or the characteristic of something where, for example, the price of an item has not been declared. Like, for example, let's, let's take a, uh, an example of, of some things that happens during auctions. And unfortunately, I've even seen this during auctions in which people are trying to raise money for Islamic causes. You have a box, and the box is sealed, and the box is wrapped, and you actually have no clue whatsoever what is in that box. And then they start auctioning it off. This is an overly risky transaction. This is gharar. Because you have no clue what is in that box. You don't know what you're buying at all. You have no clue whatsoever. And so therefore you are just taking a chance. You are taking a chance that it's going to be something good and it is going to be worth something close to what you're paying for it. So this kind of, of just chance and risk and so forth, this is prohibited by the Sharia. And obviously the details of it we don't have, we can't get into that now. It might be something that you may wish to, to study further. But again, the idea is to make everything clear and to reduce the possibility of harm to any of the parties involved. Another a very important aspect that one has to avoid with respect to his financial dealings is the issue of interest or riba. Interest is absolutely forbidden in Islam. Some of the strongest passages in the Quran have been reserved for this issue of interest. For example, in Surah Al-Baqarah, verses 275 to 279, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, <laughs> Ya 
Those who devour interest will not stand, meaning on the Day of Judgment, except as he who arises whom the devil has deranged by his touch. This is because they say trade is just like interest. While Allah has permitted trading and has forbidden interest. He unto whom an admonition from his Lord has come and he refrains shall keep the money of that which is past and his affair henceforth will be with Allah. As for him who returns to interest, such are, such are rightful owners of the fire. They will abide therein forever. Allah destroys interests and gives an increase for charity. Allah loves not every disbelieving sinner. Truly, as for those who believe, perform good deeds, establish the prayer and pay the zakat, the reward is with their Lord. No fear shall come upon them, neither shall they grieve. Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu attaqullaha wa dhu ma baqiya min al-riba kuntum mu'mineen fa'in lam taf'alu fa'adhanu biharbin O you who believe, obey your duty to Allah and give up what remains due to your interest if you are in truth believers. If you do not do so, then be informed of a war from Allah and His Messenger. But if you repent, then you have your principle without interest and do not wrong either others, and you shall not be wronged. By the way, unfortunately, some, some of the translations of the Qur'an, they translate this term riba, and they translate this passage. Instead of saying interest, they say usury. And usury, in reality, what usury is, is an exorbitant amount of interest. An exorbitant amount of interest. This is not a good translation for riba. Because riba is any amount above the principle. Any amount. So from an Islamic point of view, anything above zero, any, any rate of interest above zero is, is exorbitant. So every interest is riba, and, every, and so every interest is usury, and every usury is interest. So again, you might see that in some of the translations of the Qur'an, but in reality, it is not usury in the sense of an exorbitant amount of interest, but it is interest meaning any kind of amount. And it has been narrated that the Prophet ﷺ cursed the one who takes interest, the one who gives it, the one who records it, and the witnesses to it. They are all alike, he said. So it is not the case, you know, it is not the case that, okay, you know, alhamdulillah, I don't, I don't uh, take interest, but I pay it on this loan or that loan. No, this is not the case. This is not allowable. Any kind of dealing with interest, whether you're the one taking it or paying it or whatever, or even the one recording and so forth, this is to be, to be avoided. As we said, the Prophet cursed, cursed the, per, the person who did these things. And he said, all of them are equal. So therefore, it is forbidden to pay interest or to receive interest. And this includes any interest that you might accrue on your checking account or savings account. All of this kind of money, all of this kind of money is actually haram in Islam. And actually, the, one of the aspects of Islam when it comes to lending money, the rules, the laws for lending money in Islam, from an Islamic perspective, lending money to someone else, this is considered a brotherly act. And so therefore, the, the rules and the laws concerning loaning money are different from business transactions. Because actually, if you lend someone money, this is supposed to be a brotherly act. You shouldn't expect anything in return for it, except what you've lent them. Now, if you want to make money off of it, then, for example, you go into a partnership, some kind of business partnership, where you put your money at risk. You don't get a fixed return. You put your money at risk, and maybe you invest it. You make money, you lose money, and so forth. 
But if you're just going to lend money to someone, this is considered a brotherly act and you have no right to demand. You have no right to demand that he pay you back more than what you've given him. So Islam opens the doors to many kinds of different kinds of business transactions, partnerships, and many ways that you can invest the money, but it closes the door to any kind of injustice, including the injustice of riba. And by the way, those of you, I don't want to get too much into this, uh, into this aspect right now, but those of you, for example, who have studied economics and especially economic development, and you're familiar with the kind of harm that interest and the payment on, on, on loans is causing in the world today. How some governments have to pay more in interest payments for loans that they receive than they can spend even on health or, or education and so forth. So this has been completely prohibited in Islam. As I said, the texts regarding it are very strong texts, and the Muslims should do as best, therefore, to avoid any, any form of interest. Now there's a couple of issues, of course, that come up for a convert on this point. Because maybe you've now entered into Islam, and perhaps you have a mortgage on your house. Now let me just say right now that you might hear some people saying that, okay, mortgage is not interest or it's, it's, it's allowed under Islam for people living here or something of this nature. If you ask me, you know, none of those arguments are acceptable whatsoever. Buying a house on mortgage, this is interest and this is haram like any other interest transaction. So a problem arises where now a person becomes Muslim and he has this contract you know, he signed this contract to pay. Maybe he signed it, you know, 20 years before he is Muslim, and now he is paying interest, and he has this interest-related contract. And what should he do? Now, I've actually heard some people say, well, you know, it's going to cause him a lot of harm, maybe if he sells his house, so therefore he can go ahead and, and keep his house and, and, and so on. I don't think this is the proper advice. I don't think this is the proper ruling in the first place, but I don't think this is the proper advice to give to a Muslim. It could be the case, obviously, that a new a convert to Islam, a new Muslim maybe is not at the level of faith, the strength of faith, that he needs to be where he can, for example, give up his house because of his new religion. And we should understand that. We should show some sympathy for to them that we understand that right now you're not at that point where you're strong enough. For example, just because you're dealing in interest, you may not even think, you know, coming from an American background, you may not think interest is such a big deal anyway. Even though the verse in the Quran are so strong about it, you think it's, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's interest. You're not killing anyone, right? <laughs> you're not committing illegal sexual intercourse. It's just interest. So your, your level of faith, your attachment to Islam may not be strong enough right now. May not be strong enough right now to lead you to do that thing. To lead you to give up interest and give up your mortgage and so forth. And that is to some extent understandable. But that does not excuse the action. Okay, in other words, you have to understand that even if you are not strong enough to do it now, you should have in your mind the idea that someday you're going to be strong enough to do it. And that you're going to work towards that goal because you understand that it is wrong. You understand that being involved in interest is wrong. And, and regardless of the fact that this contract maybe took place years ago, you are still involved in it now. If you had illicit relations with a woman before Islam, you're not going to continue them after Islam. And just say, well, you know, we were, you know we've been living together for five years now and we've been, you know, we've been hitched up for this time. Well, I'll just continue. No, obviously, you don't do that. So similarly, with respect to riba, you have to understand that this is something that you have to give up. You have to give up that girlfriend that you were living with. That might have been difficult. Maybe you didn't lose money, or although you might have, but you know, you, maybe you didn't lose money giving up the, that girlfriend, but you realized that you had to do it. And similarly, you have to come to the point and try to make yourself strong enough that you're also willing to give up this for the sake of Allah. So it might be something, you know, we can understand. Maybe it might be difficult for you now. We'll show you sympathy and kindness and so forth. But at the same time, you yourself should try to lead yourself to the ultimate goal of giving up that transaction which involves riba. 
Now, by the way, also a lot of, a lot of Muslims, especially since a lot of converts are students in, in school and so forth, a lot of Muslims may have, may have student loans. And so therefore they're paying interest on a, on a monthly basis. Or they may have credit card loans from before they were, before they were Muslim or credit card debt before they were Muslim. And so therefore they are actively involved, so to speak, in paying interest right now. So again, the same kind of thing. They should try their best to free themselves from that situation as quickly as possible. And in fact, freeing themselves from that situation, you know, paying extra, for example, on the, on the credit card or on the student loan, paying extra in order to get the balance down as quickly as possible, this might even take precedence over giving charity. Because stopping what is haram sometimes takes precedence over even starting something or doing something which is good. So the, the goal again, the individual has to realize that this is not right. Obviously since these are things you entered into before Islam, the sin of them may not be as great obviously as if you do it now, or if a Muslim who knows it was wrong does it. And obviously that's the case, no one, no one will argue with that. But at the same time, your ultimate goal again should be to free yourself from anything which is haram, including these kinds of transactions. And quickly, obviously, any kind of fraud or deception. As the Prophet ﷺ said, من منا, Whoever commits deception, whoever frauds the people is not one of us. Any kind of fraud or deception has to be avoided by a Muslim in all of his transactions. Now, any kind of cheating, any kind of deception, whether it's done towards a Muslim or non-Muslim, obviously it is haram in Islam. So, a Muslim should have the best of business ethics. But we see that, we see from these last few lectures that basically all of your interactions with anyone that you meet, even with animals and the environment and wealth and property, whatever, you have to do your best to make sure that all of your interactions are based on and under the guidance of Islam. You behave properly in all of these different interactions. And in so doing, inshallah, you will be pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Please proceed to the next CD.